Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome, oddities, freaks, and geeks, and any of you new listeners. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me, the odd man out. I appreciate it very much. And this week, we're going to be talking about none other than, well, what else could we possibly talk about? That is Russia bombing Ukraine. Yes, it happened in the middle of the night. And, well, we've been warned about it. There was a lot that led up to it, and we won't go into complete detail. I have to admit, I didn't know much about it. But I want to talk a little bit about possibly what the media is not covering. And also to remind you guys that I don't think we can really trust what's coming out of GovCorp media. That is the White House PR machine and corporate media because they lied to us about Pearl Harbor, the Gulf of Tonkin, and Vietnam. The war on terror, of course, 9-11, the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. They don't even talk about Yemen and what's going on there. So we know these people are in bed with the military-industrial complex and all these different NGOs and corporate organizations, the corporati. So can we really trust them? They know that most Americans have no clue about foreign policy whatsoever, and they can pretty much tell them anything, and many will believe it. So we need to take that into account, of course. But I also wanted to look a little more at Ukraine, because I didn't know much about the country, and kind of go from there. And also, we'll be looking at the World War I era Wilson Committee on Public Information, and that was George Creel and Edward Bernays and even Walter Lippmann for a time. And that was probably the first 
really the first mass propaganda unit of the government. Of course, propaganda has been around forever, but that was, it was just amazing what they were able to do. They turned a country whose mind was like the founding fathers, non-interventionist. They didn't want us to get involved in foreign entanglements because they had seen that that had caused a tyranny back home. And it doesn't take much thinking to look back and see how much less free we are since 9-11 and the war on terror began. So anyway, let's talk about all these things. And we'll also mention some work by the late William Bloom, who explained how we have, the U.S., not us, the citizens, a certain agency has been involved in numerous coups, overthrows of foreign governments, election meddling, and all kinds of other stuff. So I think it's just going to be kind of a mixed bag, but everything's going to connect. So without any more messing around, why don't we just get right to it? All right, moving on. I wanted to look into Ukraine a little bit. I told you guys a few minutes ago I didn't know much about it, and I wanted to find out more. One of the first things I ran across was that the U.S. has given Ukraine, well, this is in 2016, $423,576,629 in foreign aid. Yes, that's a lot, right? Well, you know, I thought, wonder if we're still giving Russia foreign aid, like we did during the Cold War, and they would just turn around and buy weapons and equipment with it. Well, turns out we do. Uh, let's see here. This is, says here that last year or yearly, we give them about $274,780,419 we gave them 1.5 billion annually from 2005 to 2008 this is the us department of energy is still the main source of foreign aid in russia and it aims to promote international nuclear materials protection and cooperation additionally aid is sent to russian ngos as part of the endowment for democracy that is supposed to promote democratic institutions such as political groups, trade unions, and free markets. Now, according to the website visualcapitalist.com, map explainer, key facts about Ukraine. Well, it says that the GDP in Ukraine, 155.6 billion. Their land area is 603,628 kilometers. Okay, their population is 43,467,779. Here's some interesting facts here. In 1986, Chernobyl suffered the worst nuclear disaster in history, allegedly. Even today, there is an exclusion zone covering an area of approximately 2,600 kilometers, where radioactive contamination is highest and public access is restricted. The fourth longest river in Europe, the Dnieper River, begins in the Valdai Hills of Russia, then flows through Belarus and in Ukraine to the Black Sea. A number of reservoirs and hydroelectric dams lie along the length of the river. Of course, Kiev is the capital there, I believe. Yes. 
and that population is 2,962,180. They have, let's see, agricultural land covers 70% of the country. Work sends shockwaves through the global agricultural markets. And I had read they're a big potato exporter. It says here, in the 90s, most gas that Russia exported to Europe crossed Ukraine. Newer pipelines like the Nord Stream and the Turk Stream have diminished Ukraine's gas transit role. Got several major pipelines running through there. Although not a NATO member, Ukraine is the fourth largest recipient of military funding from the U.S. So that foreign aid doesn't even count the military aid or the military funding. Of course, you've got Odessa down at the bottom. You've got you've got the Carthaginian Mountains. A lot of histories happened there. Belarus is right beside Ukraine to the north. Of course, then you've got the Ukrainian-Russian border, which the U.S. NATO has continuously put their bases on the Russian border, and of course. The Russians and Putin have warned against this for a long time. So I can't help but wonder what the U.S. would do if a hostile country put even one or two of their bases right on our border. Don't you think we would go and destroy them immediately? And I'm not taking up for Russia and saying what they did was correct, but there's a lot more to the story. Trust me. Now over to the West, the Far West you have two conflict zones. Ukrainian government forces and Russia-backed separatists have been battling for control over this heavily industrialized portion of the country since 2014. It says here, so far the conflict has killed more than 14,000 people. Vladimir Putin, Russian president, officially recognized the Donetsk and the Luhansk regions, shown below, as a breakaway people's republics. Since 2014, upwards of 1.5 million people fled these regions to Russia and other parts of Ukraine. Now, one thing I've learned is that NATO was trying to get Ukraine to join, allegedly. And the president there, he has talked about, yes, the actor-slash-comedian president, has talked about possibly Ukraine getting nuclear weapons. And I believe if what we're seeing is correct, that's why Putin and the Ruskies decided to go ahead and go in there. The uh, talk about them getting, possibly being a NATO ally, part of NATO, and then getting nuclear weapons, that was just too much, of course. And again, not saying what he'd done was right and what he's doing is right, but you've got to think about the big situation. If you want to look at the demographics in Ukraine, Belarusians are 0.6%, Bulgarians 4 Hungarians 3 Crimeans 0.5%, Romanians 3%, Poles 3%, Jews 2%. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine turned over thousands of atomic weapons in exchange for security guarantees from Russia, the United States, and other countries. 
However, the defense industry continues to be a strategically important sector and a large employer in Ukraine. The country exports weapons to countries like India, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Furthermore, Ukraine is rich in natural resources, particularly in mineral deposits. It possesses the world's largest reserves of commercial-grade iron ore, 30 billion tons of ore, or around one-fifth of the global total. It's also worth noting that Ukraine ranks second in terms of known natural gas reserves in Europe, which today remain largely untapped. Ukraine's mostly flat geography and high-quality soil composition make the country a big regional agricultural player. The country is the world's fifth largest exporter of wheat and the largest exporter of seed oils like sunflower and rapeseed. Coal mining, chemicals, mechanical products, aircraft, turbines, locomotives, and tractors, and shipbuilding are also important sectors of the Ukrainian economy. The country shares borders with Russia, both to the east and the northeast. For context, a car trip from Moscow to one of the Ukrainian border cities, Shostka, takes around eight hours. To the northwest, Ukraine also shares borders with Belarus, a country that is closely aligned with the Kremlin. Ukraine still remains an important route for Russian gas that heats millions of homes, generates electricity, and powers factories in Europe. The contingent gets nearly 40% of its natural gas and 25% of its oil from Russia. Ukraine stands at the center of geopolitical rivalry between Western powers and Russia, and that rivalry is flaring up once again. So this was written yesterday. Some good information on here, and I will include it in the show notes. A little more on the gas, the natural gas. It says Europe relies on Russia for around 40% of its natural gas. The bulk comes through pipelines including Yamal, which crosses Belarus and Poland, to Germany, Nord Stream 1, which runs directly to Germany, and pipelines through Ukraine. A network of interconnecting pipelines link Europe's internal gas markets. Now, going back to the arming and disarming, let's see here. I found in a WikiLeaks drop just a couple of days ago, it said that NATO Partnership for Peace, or PIP, urged Ukraine to destroy the remaining 265,000 out of the 400,000 agreed upon weapons in 2009 and also 15,000 tons in all was what NATO wanted. That was the target. So we're seeing mixed messages here, and it's no different than a lot of things we've seen in the past regarding the war on terror and these different groups of jihadis and rebels that they would arm and then disarm. You know, it's like they would kill them and then they would build back up, they would arm them, and then they would kill them again. You know, it's just the craziest thing. Our foreign policy is absolutely insane. I mean, it's pretty well known that some of the rebels that the U.S. has been funding to fight Russia in Ukraine are right-wing, real-time Nazis. People have got film of those guys, pictures of those guys. It's been talked about for several years. So, really... It's kind of funny, you've got former communists fighting Nazis in 2022. It's just insane. 
And of course, the mainstream public knows nothing about this. George Creel was a master of public relations. Creel was the head of something called the Committee on Public Information, which basically was a propaganda organization in World War I. Creel started off as a journalist in Missouri. He actually worked with Woodrow Wilson on his 1916 campaign based on the slogan, he kept us out of war. We had actually spent three years staying out of the war. So suddenly in 1917, when we entered the war, one of the very first things that Wilson did was bring George Creel on to shift public opinion in support of the war. He had to convince the American people that this was a war worth fighting and that this was America's war. That's a hard thing to communicate. From the moment that the war broke out, there were posters everywhere. There were images everywhere you looked, very deliberately shaping public opinion. George Creel was working very much behind the scenes. Nobody knew who he was. He was not a prominent figure in the Wilson administration, but he had this profound influence. World War I is this moment where propaganda is used in a very heavy-handed way, but George Creel did it brilliantly. Even with the money necessary to fight the war, the government realized they would need the popular support of Americans, most of whom had been either neutral or openly against involvement. Therefore, President Wilson appointed a former muckraking journalist, George Creel, to head the Committee on Public Information, our nation's first propaganda agency. Creel was a giant when it came to advertising and public relations. He called his committee the world's greatest adventure in advertising. Creel convinced the best writers, artists, musicians, and advertising people of the day to help him sell the war. From booklets and books for Americans in various languages to anti-government propaganda messages for our enemies. Creel even got into the movie business with features such as Under Four Flags with the help of famous film director D.W. Griffith. These pro-war movies were not only hits, they actually made money for the cause. $852,744. Remarkable when you realize that it only cost a nickel to see a movie back then. Simply put, Creel helped make an unpopular war popular. His masterstroke was the creation of a national force of 75,000 men who would deliver a patriotic four-minute speech anytime, anywhere. The four-minute men spoke on the draft, rationing, bond drives, and victory gardens. By the end of the war, they had delivered more than seven and a half million speeches to 314 million listeners. Musicians gave voice to the war. Songs like, Till We Meet Again, It's a Long, Long Way to Tipperary, Keep the Home Fires Burning, and Over There, Kept American Spirits High. So onto the CPI, and this was the establishment of systematic pervasive propaganda as an ins instrument of the state. It had never been so systematic and so um, pervasive as it was during the war. This is because it was a total war and total war required total mobilization of citizens both here and abroad. Uh, the story is, is meant to be 
uh, present-minded in an important way. Pretty much everything that's done today by way of government propaganda has its origins with the CPI. In fact, really everything, including social media, which I'll get to. Woodrow Wilson, who was called the high priest of propaganda and was once dubbed the greatest propaganda the modern world has known, displaying, displaying extraordinary skill and dexterity, but they show how easy it is to expand the powers of the government and the White House to uh, manipulate what people think. Woodrow Wilson calling unwelcome comment enemy talk, the idea being that if you said certain things that contradicted policy, you were really talking like the enemy did. The individual who was put in charge of the Committee on Public Information was a hyperbolic, muckraking journalist named George Creel, who I might add was nearly as unhinged at times as President Trump was in terms of saying things that were, um, were not only fake news, but preposterous. The CPI lasted only for the duration of the war, uh, but its scale is sprawling. It was a publishing conglomerate. It had pamphlets, news services, both overseas and abroad, syndicated stories and cartoons, and thousands and thousands of press releases. It prepackaged news, what we call press releases, and made that a quotidian aspect of governing. The pictorial division produced 1,500 different poster designs, cards, advertisements, seals, buttons, and buttons for 98 agencies and committees, the latter ranging from the Federation of Neighborhood Associations to the Salvation Army. It distributed tens of thousands of slides uh, taken by the military overseas. Its advertisements were ubiquitous in newspapers and magazines. Family watched CPI produce theater uh, films in theaters across the country. The CPI piggybacked on the motion picture industry, on advertising associations, on universities, and other professional bodies that gave it pathways into the American minds and hearts. The Boy Scouts, traveling salesmen, and corporate titans all did their, uh, all did their bit to help the CPI. The Four Minute Men is an extraordinary aspect of the story and revealing because it was so clever uh, and so powerful. Uh, during these times at movie theaters, it took several minutes to change reels. And during this period, uh, CPI speakers would get up. They were called Four Minute Men because that's how long they were expected to speak. They looked like they were local. Uh, that is, they were local people, local town leaders, but they were heavily scripted from Washington, DC. It was a very effective way of communicating messages. The messages were organized on a week-by-week -week basis. And uh, at the same time, uh, there were details on what was expected to be said. To understand the magnitude of this, at the end of the war, there were 75,000 four-minute men who were doing their work across the United States and eventually branched out from uh, movie theaters to do work in logging camps and churches uh, and at Sunday afternoon socials. Uh, at the end of the war, the Encyclopedia Britannica came out with a new edition and had a long, long uh, uh, section about propaganda, which by the way, there had been no reference for propaganda in the earlier editions of the Encyclopedia, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, under that definition, under that section, it was written that the quality of propaganda, it is a quality of propaganda that high-minded persons on both sides commend their cause by identical arguments, and that high-strung persons soon come to believe what they wish to be true. And this is an important aspect of propaganda everywhere, which is it's not just bad people who do propaganda. In the case of the CPI, it was actually well-meaning progressives who ended up beginning to realize that the results they wanted were more important than the means. They resorted to fear and, uh, fear, uh, and hate-mongering. Uh, if you take a look at the cover of the book, there's a poster, uh, Joseph Pinnell's famous poster, 
Many historians have thought that wasn't the CPI poster. Uh, it's, a, it's a poster showing that the Germans are bombing New York City, which of course is ridiculous. That never could have happened. Uh, you can see right under the, under the statue, by the way, you can see the Statue of Liberty's head in the, in the, on the ground there. Um, that was a, but that was a CPI poster. And uh, it was commissioned by the CPI to help promote Liberty bonds. And, um, and the CPI both directed that it, be, that it be created and helped in the production of it. Also, of course, the CPI provided, as propagandists always do, they provided tendentious information. That is information that was tilted in their direction. They went so far at one point as to publish a column that was distributed around the United States called Official Facts. Uh, the CPI was also uh, used uh, non-consensual uh, means to, in to encourage people to support them. That, that involved, of course, invoking patriotism, but it also involved just the fact that the propaganda itself was so ubiquitous. William Johns, uh, a very famous uh, advertising executive who was also the head of the CPI advertising division, sent back a postcard once when he was traveling uh, near Denver. And he pointed out that, uh, and I'll just quote you what he said, he, he talked about the Virgin of Virgin Mary-like nurse in the Red Cross poster that the CPI had produced. Uh, it's a very famous poster. And the poster he said was in the windows of towns on the prairies Towns hardly as big as this postal card in the flat, arid lands. You could not go anywhere without seeing a CPI um, advertisement for what it wanted to do. You couldn't, you couldn't have fun by going to the movie without hearing about the CPI, either watching CPI films or listening to Four Minutemen. You couldn't pick up a paper without seeing something from the CPI. And uh, you couldn't walk down the street without seeing something that had been produced by the CPI. All, of course, being done with taxpayer dollars. If you think about it, it's sort of an exercise in the taxpayers' dollars being used to shape what they think about the world. I apologize for those long clips. I just wanted to help everyone to understand how we got to where we are today with domestic propaganda and how it's been used ever since the Committee on Public Information and probably even before to control our minds and control what we think. And the people in charge, the GovCorp, if you will, but the military industrial complex, the media, the White House, the Pentagon, all the above, the NGOs, the CFRs, they know how to control our minds. And it's very, very important to know what has happened. It's important to know this history. It's important to know that they've been kind of controlling us for so long and making us think whatever they want us to think because they know that we'll be none the wiser. I want to look into something else that is related to this in a way. When you look at the work of the late William Bloom, who worked for the State Department, and I think in the 60s, maybe 67, he resigned because he did not like what he was seeing by our government overthrowing these other countries' governments and doing different things that was unconstitutional and just not right. So he became a whistleblower and became an author and wrote a bunch of books about it. Now, he was a lefty, more like a classic liberal, but the thing is, his information was solid and it can't be refuted. And so I think it's very important to realize that a certain ABC agency and not just them, but other parts of our leadership in the past in a bipartisan move, because it's been Democrats and Republicans, have really meddled in other countries in their governments and their elections and with their leadership many, many times. So you look up overthrowing other people's governments, the master list by William Bloom.
And it says instances of the United States overthrowing or attempting to overthrow a foreign government since the Second World War. You look at China, 1949 to the early 60s, Albania, 1949 to 1953, East Germany in the 50s, Iran, 1953, Operation Ajax, Guatemala in 54, Costa Rica in the mid 50s, Syria in 1956 and 57. And if you look at the declassified documents by the CIA, they came out maybe 10 years ago. We found out that under the Reagan administration or during the Reagan administration, they wanted to overthrow Bashar Assad's father in Syria, who was in charge at the time. And they wanted to run an oil pipeline through there that he did not approve of. But it never happened. You look at Egypt, 1957. Indonesia, 57 to 58. British Guiana, 53 to 64. Iraq, 1963. North Vietnam, 1945 to 1973. Cambodia, 1955 to 1970. Laos, 1958-59-60. Ecuador, 60 to 63. Congo, 1960. France, 65. Brazil, 62 to 64. The Dominican Republic in 63. Cuba in 59. Bolivia, 1964. Indonesia, 65. Ghana, 66. Chile, 1964-273. Greece, 1967. Costa Rica, 1970-71. Bolivia, 71. Australia, Australia, 1973-75. Angola, 75 in 1980s. Zaire in 1975. Portugal, 1974-76. Jamaica, 76 to 80. Seychelles, I don't even know where that is. It's 79 to 81. Chad, 81, 82. Grenada, 83. South Yemen, 82 to 84. Suriname or Suriname, 1982, 84. Fiji, 87. Libya, 1980s. Nicaragua, 81, 90. Panama, 89. Bulgaria, 90. Albania, 1991. Iraq, 1991. Afghanistan, 1980s. Somalia, 93. We're getting close. Yugoslavia, 1992 to 2000. Ecuador, 2000. Afghanistan, 2001. Venezuela, 2002. Iraq, 2003. Haiti, 2004. Somalia, 2007 to present. Yes, we're bombing as we speak. I just read an article, I think, two days ago. We were dropping bombs in Somalia. Honduras, 2009. Libya, 2011. Syria, again in 2012. Ukraine, 2014. And it says down at the bottom, why will there never be a coup d'etat in Washington? Because there's no American embassy there. And so I would just suggest, if you don't believe me and you think I'm a commie and I'm an anti-American traitor, to go and look at William Bloom's work. As I said, you can't really dispute what he said because he was an insider. He knew how to get the documents and he knew how to prove it. 
So you've got rogue state. You've got America's deadliest export democracy, killing hope, freeing the world to death. And his first book, I think, was West Block Dissident. You know, uh, it's just they thrive on war. And it's the global corporatists who really thrive. The military-industrial complex doesn't just consist of the private security agencies and the weapons manufacturers. All kinds of other industries thrive upon it. I mean, just look into it yourselves. But of course, you've got to, you've got to make the uniforms. You've got to make the armor. You've got to make all the tech gadgets, all the food, all the medicines. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so we've built a system that kind of thrives on having us in all these theaters of war and these foreign entanglements in other countries. And I know this may upset a lot of people, especially on the right, who've kind of been conditioned to believe that patriotism means getting involved in other countries' wars. But if you actually look at the Founding Fathers, and I always say that we don't have to agree with everything they said and did, and I disagree with many of them on their religious beliefs, but they were right about a lot of things too. So we got to be honest about that and learn from the things that they had taught that were correct, if you know what I mean. So they warned of large standing armies. They warned of foreign entanglements. They wanted us to be non-interventionist. And we learned early on in the show that under Woodrow Wilson and Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was a socialist, who wrote a book called Philip Drew Administrator about a world socialist state. Yes, we're talking about, if you didn't know, he was the assistant to Woodrow Wilson. And he was dreaming of a socialist state. He was big in the League of Nations. He and others drew us in to World War I to break us and to get us ready to accept a world socialist state. And so that's just the way it is. They thought they could do it through war, eternal peace through eternal war, or the war to end all wars. And of course, we've been in war ever since, pretty much. And I always have to say this, I feel like I need to, because I have a lot of friends and family who've been in the military, and I'm not demeaning you in any way, but we can't deny the past, and we can't deny history and the further you look into these policies, you realize that it has nothing to do with the safety of the people and defending the Constitution and all the things we were led to believe it was about. It's only enriched these globalists who want to change our society. And our country changes with every war. It's kind of like you go back to the thesis, antithesis equals synthesis. And you can actually look at that and understand how every time we have a war, we have to change things and we lose freedoms here. So that synthesis includes less freedom. So it doesn't just change these other countries that we're fighting in. It also changes us. And the, these global corporatists, these pro-socialist, you know, crony capitalists, uh, public-private partnership fascists, whatever you want to call them, it's a synthesis of all those different types of systems. They want to break us and create something. They want to create their order out of the chaos they have created and manufactured. What I'd like to do 
is just talk a little bit and mention a few of the founding fathers' quotes on foreign policy and whatnot. Uh, I'm going to start with James Madison, and he said, the means of defense against a foreign danger historically has become the instrument of tyranny at home. He also said, if tyranny and oppression come to this land, it will be in the guise of fighting a foreign enemy. He said, no nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Jefferson said the spirit of this country is totally adverse to large military forces. He said governments constantly choose between telling lies and fighting wars, with the end result always being the same. One will always lead to the other. Of course, he had the famous quote, Peace and friendship with all mankind is our wisest policy, and I wish we may be permitted to pursue it. He said, War is as much a punishment to the punisher as the sufferer. Washington said overgrown military establishments are under any form of government inauspicious to liberty and are to be regarded as particularly hostile to the Republican liberty. And one of my favorites, guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. You know, we see all these war hawks on the right and the left coming out on social media and saying we need to basically go to war with Putin. We need to be really aggressive with Putin. We need to just kick his ass. You know, I saw what's his name on Red State, um, Eric Erickson. He's actually blocked me from his personal account, but I saw his Red State and he was just saying we need to drop the hammer down on Putin and all of this stuff without any thought of the consequences or who will be actually fighting the wars or if it's constitutional or not. You just see all these people spouting this nonsense and it's it's worse than nonsense. It's actually deadly because it could get a lot of our men and women killed and injured and they could push us into World War III and it's unbelievable. Well, it's not actually, but, you know, I talk about this a lot, but under the Obama administration, you know, as soon as, you know, they hated Bush and Cheney, Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, all of them hated their guts. And that was a big CFR administration there. And then you get Obama in with another big CFR administration, goes into Libya, sells the Russians uranium, him, Hillary and Biden, and not a peep. They just tried to ignore it. You know, the regular Democrats this time, this time, they are coming out in full force and showing their true warmongering colors. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's just out in the open. So the parties have switched around in that regard. Now the Democrats are really for war, and the Republicans are kind of in the middle. And then the Democrats are for all these big companies and these big monopolies, and the Republicans are kind of against that now. It's it's pretty amazing, but uh, it just shows you how quickly things can change and how easily people's minds can be changed depending on the propaganda and who's the leader and those kinds of things. Now I'll mention just a few more quotes here. Washington said, My first wish is to see this plague of mankind, called war, banished from the earth. Now, even though Eisenhower was a puppet of the CFR and the globalists, and he, of course, 
did coin the term military industrial complex, which was awesome, but he was a globalist. Anyway, he had a few good quotes and he said, how far can you go without destroying from within what you are trying to defend from without? And he also said, we bankrupt ourselves in the vain search for absolute security. And Alex de Tocqueville, he said, all those who seek to destroy the liberties of a democratic nation ought to know that war is the surest and shortest means to accomplish it. Just a few more here. George Orwell said, every war, when it comes or before it comes, is represented not as a war, but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. The essential act of war is destruction, not necessarily of human lives, but of the products of human labor. War is a way of shattering to pieces materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable and too intelligent. All the war propaganda, all the screaming and lies and hatred comes invariably from people who are not fighting the wars. And Huxley said, What is absurd and most monstrous about war is that men who have no personal quarrel should be trained to murder one another in cold blood. A state of war, Sultanhezen says, serves as an excuse for domestic tyranny. And Sultanhezen also says, The next war may well bury Western civilization forever. Two more, and then I'm going to get to a speech by John Quincy Adams that I thought was amazing. In all history, there is no war which was not hatched by the governments, the governments alone, independent of the interests of the people, to whom war is always pernicious, even when successful. And G.K. Chesterton said, A man who says that no patriot should attack the war until it is over is saying no good son should warn his mother of a cliff until she has fallen. And there's a hundred quotes in there, some really good stuff. And again, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, I want to go over a great, great speech that I found, a very short speech, as far as speeches go, from a president, John Quincy Adams, from July 4th, 1821. And again, we can talk all about the Founding Fathers and different things about that. But I believe John Quincy Adams was the guy who basically started the anti-Masonic party, if that gives you any kind of clue of who he was. Now, this is a speech to the U.S. House of Representatives on Foreign Policy. And bear with me because it's a short speech, but obviously he speaks very eloquent as the dudes did back then. And I do not speak that way. I am a Southerner and I can't speak these fancy words, but I'm going to give it a shot. Because the overall idea of this speech is fabulous. It really conveys what I think this country should have been as far as foreign policy goes, how we should have thought, how we should have approached it. And this is, I think, the way that the founders actually wanted the country to be. And now, my friends and countrymen, if the wise and learned philosophers of the elder world, the first observers of mutation and aberration, the discoverers of maddening ether and invisible planets, the inventors of Congreve rockets and shrapnel shells, 
should find their hearts disposed to inquire what has America done for the benefits of mankind. Let our answer be this. America, with the same voice which spoke herself into existence as a nation, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundations of government. America, in the assembly of nations, since her admission among them, has invariably, though often fruitlessly, held forth to them the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom, and of generous reciprocity. She has uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and often to disdainful ears, the language of equal liberty, of justice, and equal rights. She has, in the lapse of nearly half a century, without a single exception, respected the independence of other nations while asserting and maintaining her own. She has abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when conflict has been for principles to which she clings, as to the last vital drop that visits her heart. She has seen that probably for centuries to come, all the contests of that European world will be contests of an inveterate power and emerging right. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers will be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and the independence of all. She is the champion and the vindicator only of her own. She will commend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. She might become a dictatress of the world. She would be no longer the ruler of her own spirit. In closing, America, glory is not dominion, but liberty. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, and peace. This has been her declaration. This has been, as far as her necessary intercourse with the rest of mankind would permit, her practice. John Quincy Adams, 1821. Can you imagine a president speaking like that today? It's just amazing. And I believe, friends, America should never have went over seas abroad, searching for monsters whom it must devour. But we did, and we have been, and we thought it was for the greater good. We thought it was for the betterment of mankind, but it was destroying us. We were tricked many times, and I hate to say that, but it's true because history has told the tale. I want to end this bad boy with a couple more quotes, forgive me, quick quotes by Major General Smedley D. Butler, 
and he wrote the book War is a Racket. He was the highest-ranking military man of his time, but he changed his mind when he retired. He realized the things that were going on and the things he had partaken of, and he told the truth about them. And, you know, I saw his gravesite, and wouldn't you know it, he was a Mason. And I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't a one-world government advocate. I think I even read that after he retired. But a lot of these patriotic guys were fooled about that whole one-world government thing because they didn't understand what these guys were doing. They didn't understand the guys he was talking about, these global corporatists who had pushed the military into going overseas to help them with their businesses were the same guys behind this one world government kind of uh, push. And a lot of people didn't realize that for a long time, but he said, war is a racket. A racket is best described, I believe as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the masses. Now, I suggest everyone look this up. He said, I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I would say it was corporatism, but, you know, to each his own. I helped to make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped to make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for National City Bank boys to collect revenues. I helped in the raping of a half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see that Standard Oil, Rockefellers, went its way unmolested. He said, if only more of today's military personnel would realize that they are being used by the owning elite as a publicly subsidized capitalist goon squad. He goes on to say he thinks there's only two things we should fight for. That's the Bill of Rights and our homes. But he also said, I believe in an adequate defense at the coastline and nothing else. If a nation comes over here to fight, then we'll give them hell. The trouble with America is that when the dollar only earns 6% over here, then it gets restless and goes overseas to get 100%. Then the flag follows the dollar and the soldiers follow the flag. But war is a racket. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Now, one thing I'd probably be remiss if I didn't mention this, you have to remember also that NATO works hand in hand with the Atlantic Council. Okay. Now, you need to understand that your top generals go to the Atlantic Council, NATO. It all works as one cabal, kind of like how the World Economic Forum works with the Club of Rome. So I thought I would look, and I posted this on social media, but I'm sure most people never looked at it. But on the AtlanticCouncil.org, you can go on their honor roll of contributors. You look on here, let's see, the 
$100,000 donations. You see British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. You see Elizabeth Lux Foundation, the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, Facebook, Goldman Sachs. You see the Rockefeller Foundation. You see Saab, North American Inc. You see Systems Capital Management. Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, Airbus. There's a ton of them. I'm not mentioning all of them. Chevron, Crescent Petroleum, General Atomics, Google, J.P. Morgan Chase, of course, their foundation. John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Palantir, of course. Raytheon. The Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. United States Department of State, the Victor Pinchuk Foundation, Army Future Studies Group, Bank Pacao S.A., Blackstone Charitable Foundation, Skull and Bones, Burisma, BP, Dell, the Embassy of Bahrain to the United States, the Embassy of Japan, FedEx, another Skull and Bones member started FedEx, by the way. Hunt Consolidated. As I said, I'm not mentioning them all. Lockheed Martin. Morningstar Family Foundation. Richard Morningstar. NATO Public Diplomacy Division. NATO Stratcom Center of Excellence. George Soros' Open Societies Foundation. Plowshares Fund. PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. RBC Capital Markets, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Siemens, Taiwan Economic and Cultural Representative Office, Thales Group, United Parcel Service, UPS, United States Department of Energy, United Technologies Corp., Raytheon Technologies, Ronald Weiser, BlackRock, Bridgewater Associates, ExxonMobil, her Majesty's Government, Marine Corps University, MetLife, Northrop Grumman, Penguin Random House, book publishers, General Brent Snowcroft, Twitter Inc., U.S. Mission to NATO, Boeing, Bank of America, BAE, 21st Century Fox, Cigna. I mean, it goes on and on. I guess I don't need to read them all, so I'll put that also in the show notes. I know, oh, here's Procter & Gamble, of course. They've been behind a lot of bad stuff over the years. Uh, Symantec, Texas A&M University. Anyway, look, guys, it's a big cabal. It's part of the military-industrial complex, also along with the CFR donors and contributors, members, so many more. So I think that's worth looking into because NATO is in charge of this whole mess and they're probably going to pull us into World War III. And I believe it's on behalf of a lot of these companies, these corporations, and these financiers that are a part of this whole global network. And if you actually do take a look at this list, I would suggest you also look at the Atlantic Council's members. A lot of popular, well-known names in the political sphere. So it's worth looking into as well. While we are talking about the Atlantic Council, 
we might as well mention a few things about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which started after World War II, and I think it was like five countries at that time, and now it's morphed into 30 countries. And as it says here on visualcapitalist.com, that each member of NATO is obligated to help another member if they have a war. And so whatever these other countries get involved with, you know, the U.S. has to get involved with as well. And that goes against everything the founders warned about entangling alliances. But let's look at some of the spending for NATO. I think that it's mainly a money laundering organization like many departments in the government, many NGOs and many think tanks and policy institutes, tax-exempt foundations, you name it. It's all a big cadre in the military-industrial complex and really just government in general, all these corporatists who are connected and aligned. Now you've got the United Kingdom spending $73 billion, Germany $65 billion, France $59 billion, Italy $30 billion, Spain, $15 billion. Netherlands, $14 billion. Poland, $13 billion. Turkey, $13 billion. Now, you look at, and there's a lot more, but it doesn't list all the percentages in some of these smaller countries. Of course, America spends how much? How much do you think, guys? America spends $811 billion. With Canada, $27 billion. It says NATO countries have seen a steady rise in defense expenditures, with total spending reaching an estimated $1.2 trillion in 2021, an increase of $24.9 trillion since 2014. It says in 2021, the U.S., accounted for 69% of the total defense spending of all NATO countries. Now tell me it's not a big money racket. Lithuania, Latvia, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic have all had an increase in defense expenditures by more than 100%, with Lithuania increasing its spending by almost 200%. These are obscene numbers. So tell me it's not a racket. Tell me that they don't have huge incentives to keep these skirmishes, these battles, these wars going on all across the world. There's huge, huge incentives. And again, it has nothing to do with keeping people safe, protecting their borders. It has nothing to do with protecting their constitutions, Bill of Rights, our Bill of Rights, and things like that. But people don't think about it because they know nothing about foreign policy, foreign affairs. They just know a little bit about what the government is telling them, about whatever GovCorp media is telling them, whatever right-wing talk radio is telling them, which is very little. And a lot of them are also cheerleaders for this whole cadre that is involved in, if you want to call it the military-industrial complex, but it's much bigger than that. All kinds of corporations benefit from these things. And so it really is disgusting. And it's hard for people on the right to believe that a lot of these things that are going on are actually pushing more towards this globalist system because they equate globalism with communism and socialism. 
and they can't fathom that a lot of these large corporations and financiers would push such a thing. But now we're seeing this woke capitalism, and I think a lot of people maybe, if they think about it clearly and kind of get away from the news cycle and kind of uh, clear their minds, they can see what's happening. And it's been going on for many, many, many years, but, you know, most people don't think about it. So, you know, I said all that to say this, of course, I feel horrible for the poor citizens who are caught in the middle in Ukraine, but I urge people to look deeper at the information. Don't just accept what the news, what the pundits are saying, what the White House PR machine is saying. Look deeper into the past, into the history of Ukraine, NATO, the Atlantic Council, Russia, the United States, the things that have been going on in that region. And hopefully this show has helped people to kind of, uh, I don't know, whet your appetite for finding out more information because I don't pretend to know everything. I just want to give you some information you can take with you to kind of help you to understand these things and maybe look a little bit deeper. So that is it. That is it for this episode. And I'm doing this outro a couple of days later. It is now the 25th. And I've had a chance to listen to a couple of other podcasts that really kind of gave me more information that I really needed about Ukraine and the modern history there. And one was a part of 21 Wire with Patrick Hennigsen and my friend Hesher from ACR, Alternate Current Radio, and The Boiler Room. And he was on with Patrick. And so the latest episode of Boiler Room, the second half, is that conversation. And Patrick is an investigative journalist with 21 Wire, and he really knows his foreign policy very, very well. And he explains the modern, recent history of Ukraine. And a lot of that stuff I had no clue about. Another one, I'm going to put both of these in the show notes so you guys can check these out because these guys know way more than I do. Also, check out Scott Horton on the Mance Raider show or Free Man Beyond the Wall. I'm not sure what he calls that show now, but I will put that on there. I think it's the next to the latest show with Mance Raider. And so Scott Horton's a really good uh, guy on foreign policy as well even though he doesn't talk about the Atlantic Council and the Council on Foreign Relations and stuff like that. But he does know a lot about foreign policy. And he explains a lot of things, too, about Ukraine, Russia, America, and the whole push and pull. So I want you guys to check those out if you want to. And I hope you got something out of this. I know it was kind of all over the place, but it was also connected. And that's what's important. I want to thank everyone, especially my patrons. Thank you so much to the producer, the anonymous producer who helped me get a new microphone or a new to me microphone, I actually found it used, but my microphone, as some of you might've noticed on the skull and bones part one episode was making some weird noises. The darn thing was basically glued together and I'd had that thing for over 10 years and I've got a lot of old equipment. My preamp is older than 10 years. My computer's going out. All kinds of crap. But now I've been doing this podcasting for two years. And I was already working with old equipment. So I'm going to have to get some newer equipment and some storage to store some of these shows on. I've got over 100 shows now. And that's a lot, a lot of room on a hard drive. So anyway, I appreciate any help you guys want to give. I've got three tiers on Patreon right now. So guys, go on there, patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Check it out. I'm going to be putting more stuff on there soon. It's just been a crazy time. 
So I try to put the shows on there early for the patrons, but also with the different tiers, you get extra stuff. With the mid-tier, you get an extra show a month. With the producer level, you're going to get two shows a month. I'll shout out your business and even do a Skype call with you once a month if you so choose. So anyway, check those out. There's more to them. I appreciate it. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore the odd man out. I'm on Facebook still, but nobody goes on there, right? So it's uh, facebook.com forward slash the oddcast, FT, the odd man out. Also, just want to let you guys know the new alternate current radio website is up at alternatecurrentradio.com. It's a beautiful, fantastic website. I've got a great page on there. I'm going to be updating some more stuff on there soon, but check it out. It's fabulous. Thank you to Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show. Thank you to John Brisson, and we've read the documents for carrying the show. And I love you guys. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. (laughs) 